We're continuing our series. We're up to Mark chapter 5. And it's uh, about a man who is demon-possessed that Jesus meets and uh, removes the demon from him. And as we go through the passage, we're going to find that this guy here would have been considered one of the most demon-possessed people that lived in Israel at Jesus' time. After we look at the passage, we'll then consider how are we therefore to approach Satan and the devil? Uh, how do we deal with attacks by Satan? Uh, what is Satan's power? Uh, what are his strengths and what are his limits? Can a person be possessed by Satan today? And if so, um, what things should we be doing as a church and as Christians? So that's what we'll be hopefully covering this morning. So the passage we're looking at is Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. Now imagine that many modern sermons on demons would start with this very famous quote from the beginning of C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters. He writes there are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally both errors and Satan is pleased with both those errors. A uh, psychology writer, a writer, a man called Collins, he said that in some Christian circles, the devil seems to get more credit and attention than he deserves. That Satan is blamed for all problems and all annoyances. Rebuke and exorcisms are the preferred methods, and in some churches, the only methods of problem solving in the church. There is little place for compassion, understanding and sensitive Christian counselling. So as you can see, when it comes to issues like the, the devil and Satan, either you just reject him and ignore him, or you become so obsessed that you see him in every situation. So let's turn now to our passage in Mark 5 to this man who's demon-possessed. Now just before it, we've had Jesus calm a storm. So you can imagine the, uh, the, the, the adrenaline going through the disciples' body. They've uh, thought they were going to drown. They've been trying to get all the buckets, uh, buckets of water out of the boat. And Jesus stands up and says, be still, and the storm stops. And then they land. So there's a sense of exhaustion and relief. And suddenly out of nowhere, this demonic man comes running down. So they're in chapter 5, verse 1 of Mark's Gospel. So they arrived at the other side of the lake in the region of Gerasenes. Where's that? That's in the Sea of Galilee on the eastern shore. When Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out from the tombs to meet him. Now it's interesting. In the next couple of verses, they're going to give us six very key things that's going to tell us about this man. And it's interesting. The six things coincide with uh, the writers in uh, Jesus' time when it said, watch out for demon-possessed people. What do they do? List these six things. So what's the first thing? He lives in the burial caves. And then you start thinking a bit more gruesome and thinking if he's living in the burial caves, that's probably where he's also eating the dead body. So it's not, uh, not a nice thought. Uh, Mark 5 verse 3, could no longer be restrained even by a chain. Then in verse 4, it, whenever he was put into chains and shackles as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrist and smashed the shackles. The fourth thing is that no one was strong enough to subdue him. The fifth, day and night he wandered around the burial caves. Now for a Jewish person, where you buried people, that was an unclean place. So this man only lives in unclean places. And the last thing is the description of him in verse 5 is he's howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. So 
we're talking about a very, very scary person. Then in verse 6, we see Jesus meets the man. When Jesus was still a long distance away, the man saw him and ran to meet him and bowed low before him. With a shriek, he screamed, Why are you interfering with me? Jesus, Son of the Most High God, in the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. Now, it's interesting when he says Jesus, Son of the Most High God, it's not him giving respect to Jesus, but a sense of him saying, Jesus, I know who you are, therefore I have control over you. It's interesting that if you ever teach scripture, the greatest power you have in discipline is to know a child's name. If you say, hey, you be quiet, it's not as good as you saying, John, be quiet. Because as soon as you say the kid's name, he knows he's in trouble. And the Satan, uh, the demonic force here, Jesus, Son of the Most High God, that same sense of imagery. But then verse 8, For Jesus had already said to the Spirit, Come out of the man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus demanded, What is your name? As the demonic force knew Jesus' name and who he was, so Jesus was asking him, Well, tell me who you are. And the man replied, my name is Legion, because there are many of us inside this man. And uh, a bit of research on a legion, you find in the time of Jesus was possibly about a 5,000 strong army. And the legions were formed by the Roman uh, army's elite heavy infantry. And they were recruited exclusively from Roman citizens. So when a man says, I am Legion, he's basically saying, I am intensely powerful. Now, some people would say maybe he had 5,000 demons, or at least, if not 5,000, at least he was full of demons in that sense there. Then in verse 10, Then the evil spirits begged him again and again not to send them to some distant place. And where did this idea come from? It doesn't come from the Old Testament, but one of the manuscripts they've got from the Dead Sea Scrolls is called the Book of Jubilees. It's a commentary on the book of Genesis and Exodus. And uh, in that, it talks about how God and Satan had a massive debate after um, uh, Satan was defeated. And they agreed that 90% of demons would be put into uh, judgment and only 10% left on earth. Now, it is not a Bible story. It is not a Bible fact. But you can see the mindset of where this uh, demon was thinking. Because if he'd read that book, he's thinking, that's what could happen to me. So the evil spirits beat him in again and again, not to send them to a distant place. There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. Send us into those pigs. Let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the entire herd of about 2,000 pigs plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. Now, we kind of feel very sorry for the pigs because we're thinking, you know, we like bacon, it's quite nice, and there are people who even have pet pigs. But what about Jewish people? There is probably no animal which is more disgusting to Jewish sensitivities than a pig. It is not just because it may not be eaten. There are plenty of other animals that aren't kosher either. But none of them arouse the same disgust in Jews that pigs do. Colloquially, the pig is the ultimate symbol of loathing. When you say to someone, you're acting like a pig, it suggests that they are doing the most unusually abominable thing that you could possibly do. Many people think pork 
is considered the most unkosher of the unkoshered foods. And so the pigs dying, if you're a Jewish person, you think, praise God for that. It's good to get rid of all those pigs. Because there was a sense that pigs should not have been kept in Israel. Now the herdsmen flee to the nearby town, in verse 14, in the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. So everyone they met, you won't believe what happened. There's all these pigs and they all died. It was fascinating. I was in Coles the other day and um, about three people told me, oh, there's toilet paper here today. It was just like a sense that everybody should know this. These guys have that same sense. Whoever they met, you should hear what happened to 2,000 pigs. So what happens typically? As soon as you have a car accident, everyone's going to have a squeeze and have a look. And it's no different here with our pigs dying. Verse 14, pig people rushed out to see what had happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus. They saw the man had been possessed by the legion of demons. He's now seated, fully clothed, and perfectly sane. I was intrigued in Mark's use of words here. He didn't just say he's sane, he's perfectly sane. Whatever had been the man before is gone. He is a brand new person. Then verse 16, Then those who had seen what happened told the others, about the demon-possessed man and the pigs. And the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. The sanity of this demon-possessed man petrified and scared the locals. How can anybody do what Jesus has just done? And rather than praising God with confidence, it just brought fear into their life. So what happens next? What happens to the man? Verse 18. As Jesus was getting the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. And Jesus said, No, go home to your family and tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. So the man started off to visit ten towns of that region and began to proclaim the great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed at what he told them. He was an evangelist, a speaker of what Jesus had done. And he could say, I was this, and here I am today, and I am that. Over the years of ministry, I've been really, uh, really enjoyed it. To, uh, I've seen prostitutes have become Christians. I've seen drug addicts become Christians. Drug dealers become Christians. Uh, in uh, two different churches, we had guys who'd been hitmen. Now, oddly enough, if you're a hitman, you don't actually murder people because there's no money in it. You just go and break people's arms and legs with baseball bats. And you think, you know, how, what a brutal person that would be. And yet Jesus' spirit could come in and make these people sweet and nice and loving. Make a massive difference to people's lives, as it happened to this man here. So that's the first part of our sermon. The second part is that through this sermon we're talking about Satan. And we as Christians need to think, well, how does Satan impact us today? So how are we to approach Satan? Now here's some verses I picked out from Mark chapter 1. It says there in verse 27, The evil spirits obey Jesus, for he had authority over them. And as we saw in the story, the demons uh, said, you know, we're 5,000, we are such a powerful force. But Jesus had the ability with authority to say, leave, and they left. There's no argument. So God is in control of Satan and in control of demons. It says in John 12 that the prince of this world will be driven out 
and Satan stands condemned. He's already a guilty man. Then in Mark 3.27, the strong man is to be tied up. And it says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, according to Colossians chapter 1. And in Colossians chapter 2, it tells us, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he's made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So Jesus' death on the cross has disabled demons and Satan and devils. Then in Hebrews chapter 2, by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. On the day Jesus died, he opened the door to those who had lived before him, those who were living in his time, and us in the future to have access to heaven. Not based on how good we are, but how forgiven we are by God. So Satan will go and try and accuse us and accuse us and accuse us. His whole aim is to try and belittle us and twist things around and what's happening around us. And so we find in 1 John, it says there in chapter 3, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And every Bible reader is very well aware of the attack by Satan against Jesus at the beginning. Uh, so if you look in Matthew uh, chapter 4, we find that Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness and there Satan attacks him. And it's interesting, how does Satan attack him? By twisting Bible verses at him. It is no different today. Satan will still try and twist things to be in his favour. So how does Satan play his role in terms of the, the life of the church? When Judas denies Jesus, it said that Satan had entered into him. When Ananias and Sapphira were lying about how much money they had given, it was said that Satan was ruling the heart of Ananias. When Peter was trying to come to grips with um, how he should define Jesus' ministry, we find that uh, Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan, because Satan is tempting Peter. So what does Satan do? The first thing he does, he masquerades as an angel of light. He tries to come across that he is a good guy with good advice and common sense. It says uh, in 1 John 5 that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. In other words, Satan has had a field day here on planet Earth. Then in 2 Timothy 2, that the devil has taken people captive to do his will. So what is the devil like? The devil is prowling around like a roaring lion. Now I apologise if I've used this story before, but it's one of my favourite stories from my family tree. My uh, great-grandfather started Tronka Park Zoo and uh, he would, up until his 70s, he'd go hunting in Africa. And in those days, because our quarantine lawns weren't quite the same, he would take his pet dog, which was a Rhodesian Ridgeback. They're a gigantic solid beast of a dog. And they'd go hunting lions with it. One day at Tronka Park Zoo, the dog is whimpering at the door, never whimpers. Open the door and runs straight in and hides under the bed. And they try to grab this. Now, that dog probably weighed 50, 60, 70 kilos. Grabbing the dog, trying to pull it out of the bed. As soon as they got it out of the room, and run back under the bed again. And did this about two or three times. They're thinking, the dog never does this. Something must have scared it. Let's all go outside and see what scared our Rhodesian Ridgeback to make it hide under the bed. Can't think of anything more stupid. So they wandered around the uh, zoo, could not find anything. But the next day, they realised the Black Panther had escaped from its cage. 
What were they doing? Wandering around blithely with the Black Panther up in the tree looking at them the whole time. So not a good story for the family. The devil is prowling around like a roaring lion. 1 Peter 5 verse 8. So what is Satan's purpose? Satan leads the whole world astray. Now it's interesting. Satan only has one purpose. Satan's desire is to stop people following Jesus. Now do some people say, have a bad life. Sex, drugs and rock and roll. Make yourself happy. Because he knows they're not following Jesus. To others he says, you're a really good person. You don't need Jesus. You're such a lovely person. Why bother? What's he doing? Stopping people following Jesus. He will use a thousand different arguments in a thousand different situations to hinder people from consciously saying, Jesus is my Lord. That is his main purpose. And we see that in Revelation 12 verse 9. So what then is Satan's power? The first thing we have to realise is that Satan has limited power. He is but a fallen angel. As a matter of fact, on the day of judgment, one archangel is assigned the purpose of arresting Satan chaining him up and putting him into a cell of judgment. Only one angel. It's not like there's Jesus and Satan on two equal sides fighting each other. So what does it say in the Bible? Jude chapter 6, oh sorry, Jude verse 6 I should say. And I remind you of the angels who did not stay within the limits of authority. God gave them but left up the place where they belonged. God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness waiting for the great day of judgment. In other words, God will bring judgment upon Satan and the devils. As it says in Colossians 2.15, In this way he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. So in other words, Jesus defeats Satan. Then in 1 John 5, We know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning, for God's Son holds them securely, and the evil one cannot touch them. He's talking about you and I as believers. God's son holds us securely and the evil one cannot touch them. Then in John 14 verse 30, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming and he has no claim on me. Satan can tempt us. But as believers, he cannot control us. That leads us then to the question, can people get demon-possessed today? I uh, normally have my normal doctor who's away at the moment. So I went to my Plan B doctor, a lovely uh, Christian man, and gave me great uh, illustrations of people who've been demon-possessed in his church and what they had done with them. So, uh, yeah, some people find them everywhere. Some people don't find them at all. But what does the Bible say about demons? It says that some illnesses, not all illnesses, may be caused by Satan. Uh, symptoms of madness and illness due to demon possession may include convulsions, self-injury, bizarre behaviour, isolation, withdrawal, deafness and dumbness. So Satan can uh, cause harm to people. If you read the first couple of chapters of Job, you can see the battle that Satan had with God over Job's soul. And Satan shows us he has incredible powers, especially during the time of Jesus' reign. And there's biblically evidence that shortly before the second coming of Jesus, that possibly Satan may be let free once more to do harm and havoc. But imagine, Satan would work out different things for different countries. 
Here in Australia, he would say, well, if I make everybody atheist, I win. If you go to uh, parts of Africa, he says, if I get everybody scared stiff of all the uh, spiritual forces out there, I win. So he'll do different techniques for different parts of the world. But Revelation 20 speaks of Satan being released from prison for a short time uh, before he's thrown into the lake of burning sulphur. And then in 2 Thessalonians, Paul also writes about the present restraint that is imposed on the evil one. But what can we hold on to as Christians? Number one, if you're a Christian, you can't be demon-possessed. If you have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has all of you, not part of you. That a demon cannot be in a believer. That's the first and great confidence we can have. Secondly, his biggest power is one of deception. He's a con artist. He's no different to the magicians that you see on TV. We go, oh my gosh, how did you do that? Satan seeks to deceive, not with power and authority that is his own. He pretends to have control where he doesn't have control. So what are we to do as Christians when Satan attacks us? In the Lord's Prayer, we pray this prayer, deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one. And then in 2 Corinthians uh, verse 2, that Satan might not outwit us, that we should pray for wisdom. So how do we take our stand against the devil's schemes? We need to be strong in God and in his mighty power. It is interesting, if you work as a counterfeiter, they don't go and look at how do people counterfeit notes. They get taught what is the right note. And the more you know what is the right note, the more when you see a wrong note, you can see what is wrong. So you don't discover wrong by learning more about wrong. You discover wrong by learning more about what is right. So for you and I, what do we do? We put on the full armour of God. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit and the word of God. Those who believe in Jesus are secure. And we find in 1 John 5, this is a promise that you and I can hold on to. The evil one cannot harm anyone born of God. The evil one cannot harm anyone born of God. So what does it say after we talk about the armour of God? Faith must be exercised. Take up the shield of faith. With, with it you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And in 1 Peter 5, resist the devil, stand firm in your faith. You dear children are from God and have overcome them. In other words, who's them? Those inspired by the spirit of the Antichrist. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. We as Christians can have confidence that on the day that Jesus comes back, that we will be standing on the victorious side. We have confidence of our salvation. We have the confidence that the Holy Spirit is working in us. Confidence that we are forgiven. These are all things that Satan will whisper in our ears. Do you know you are saved? Are you really going to go to heaven? Do you think God loves you? That's the voice of Satan that whispers. God is the one who gives us confidence. And with that in mind, let us pray. Father, as we look at Satan, it's so easy to be obsessed by him or to ignore him. Father, give us the wisdom to know how to, to, to guide through our life in a wise way. Father, may we look always to you as the truth and the upholder of all faith. 
Our sister and all our prayers through Jesus, our Lord, our Saviour, our King and our Master. Amen.